This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And our next story comes from our regular contributor, Stephen Rosediak, who shares his story from a terrific book, Chicken Soup for the Soul, My Very Good, Very Bad Dog, which you can pick up at chickensoup.com. Here's Stephen about his dad's dog, Benny, and Benny's relationship with his mom. It wasn't that he didn't like her. It was more that Benny just didn't care about her one way or the other. The only reason he paid her any attention at all was because his best buddy did, and that was only for a few minutes at dinner time. Only then would Benny acknowledge her presence, and then only until his food was served. Surprisingly, she didn't mind getting the canine cold shoulder because she knew a sacred bond existed between a boy and his puppy. Even if this one-year-old dog wasn't quite a puppy anymore and the 69-year-old man wasn't quite a boy anymore. Unfortunately, one night, Benny's best friend became ill and people that neither of them knew came to help. They took his buddy away and Benny never saw him again. In the days and weeks that followed, he searched for him and several times he thought he'd found him. After all, his scent was everywhere, on his chair in the kitchen, on his coat hanging by the stairs, and even in his shoes, still waiting for him out on the breezeway. Benny became excited when he heard a car in the driveway or voices in the street, but in the end, it wasn't him. For weeks he moped and refused to eat, but then one day he realized something that had previously meant little to him. She was still there. That night, when they were alone, Benny slowly came over and sat at her feet. She gently began to stroke his shiny golden hair, and then something totally unexpected happened. She hugged him. From that moment forward, their relationship changed. And for each of them, the healing began. They would become inseparable companions who enjoyed taking long neighborhood walks and stopping to talk with everyone they met along the way. Whether watching Animal Planet on TV or doing nothing at all, they did it together. A team of two. Her confidant, and his new best friend. The proof of this relationship was revealed in a greeting card she routinely sent out to friends and family acknowledging holidays and special events. Depending on one's relationship with her, the card was signed, Love, Doris and Benny, Nana and Benny, or Mom and Benny. And those of us receiving these cards understood the importance of the closing salutation. We knew their story was one of recovery and rebirth, of two needy souls who found each other, and of the enduring friendship that resulted 
It was a good story, too. But like all stories, it had to end eventually. If Benny had one fault that clearly surpassed all others, it was that he wasn't immortal. As he approached his 13th year, his body began to reveal evidence of the passage of time. Their long walks gave way to shorter excursions, a consequence of his new hip difficulties. Other issues developed, and by early December, she wondered whether he'd make it through New Year's. And then, she received a devastating diagnosis of her own. They both survived the holidays, and for the next few months, the three of us spent practically every day together as she suffered the procedures that took her strength and eventually her hair. And Benny continued to be her most faithful friend and supporter. It was as if he knew that she still needed him. And in truth, she did. Although rising from his rug and walking required increasingly more effort, he struggled to greet her every time I brought her home from her daily treatments. His puppy heart still overflowed with unconditional love. His old body was still ready to snuggle. When her exhaustion forced her into her chair, I would sit nearby in the rocker, but Benny knew just where she needed him to be, resting at her feet. Benny continued to provide his love and support throughout the duration of her treatments. And when they were finally over, he died. Sadly, her healthy reprieve didn't last. For a second time, she fought the good fight. But this time, when she knew the battle was lost, she gracefully accepted the inevitable and had but one request that the ashes of her beloved Benny be interred with her. On a sunny November morning, we lay mom to rest with dad. And just as she'd asked, Benny was there too. As always, just where she needed him to be, resting at her feet. And that was Stephen Rossettiak's story, Resting at Her Feet. And again, that's at chickensoup.com. That's where you can find the story. And my goodness, as he put it best, this is a son recounting the story first of his father's passing and then of a dog, a beloved dog, Benny, passing, and then finally his mom. A story of recovery, a story of rebirth. As he put it, two needy souls, the mom and the dog, that found one another and needed one another. Benny's one big fault he wasn't immortal. A great father, mother, family, and dog story. A classic one here on Our American Stories. we continue here with Our American Stories, and we tell stories of all kinds on this show about leadership 
and a lot of stories about our military. And today, our own friend, Doug Ryder, brings us a story about both. Air Force generals cut a wide swath. Fighter pilots, bomber pilots. This general, Vernon Condra, excels in logistics. Only important if your plane needs gas. Logistics in general is not sexy for any warfighter. But like I used to tell my fighter pilot friends, they fell without us, they'll fight a hell of a war in New Mexico. But they won't go any further. Many don't know this, but the United States is the only country that can do the form of logistics called airlift. In the run-up to the Gulf War, the United States Air Force moved the equivalent of Madison, Wisconsin, and all of its contents to Saudi Arabia and back. Airlift is a system, and we literally are the only country that have it. Russia doesn't have it. China doesn't have it. None of our allies have it. They can use our facilities. See, I'm not too concerned about China invading the United States because they can't get here. I never was concerned about Russia invading the United States. Now, you've got to be concerned about strategic weapons, rockets, missiles, airplanes flying and dropping bombs. But as far as putting troops on the ground, I was never concerned about it because they don't have the system to do it. You've got to have people, you've got to have airplanes, you have to have on-load equipment, off-load equipment, you've got to have people that know how to refuel, you've got to have refueling bases, you have to have in-route bases, and all of those things have to come together in this 5,000-mile-long pipeline that you're putting in at one end and, and it's coming out the other end. Sooner or later, once you get that 5,000-mile hose, fire hydrant filled up, now stuff starts flowing through it. And, but all these bases along the way are check valves that keep it going in the way you want it to go and at the rate you want it to go. And it becomes very important that you have to control the flow we had an airplane landing every 10 minutes in Saudi Arabia or someplace in the Mideast during this thing. And we exercise that system on a day-to-day -day basis. There's airlift going on all around the world, all the time. It's just that it really ramps up in something like Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Vern's dad was not a nice man. His coach was a good man and he learned from both. I remember him buying me a baseball glove. It was a cheap little glove. And then he would put me in the front yard and he would throw balls to me as hard as he could and then chastise me because I didn't catch him. And I said, that ain't never gonna happen again. But my coaches in high school, they were the ones that were a father figure. It had to have been sometime in the late 90s. I was at a family reunion and found out that my high school football coach, who was in his 80s, late 80s at that time, was in assisted living. And I called him and I said, Coach Piper, I said, uh, 
My wife and I are here in town. Would it be all right if we came and visited you? And he said, absolutely. And he was a remarkable man. But I asked him, I said, do you have any idea the impact that you made on those who played for you? And he says, well, maybe a little bit. And here's a man who is in assisted living, but this is in the late, mid-90s. I played, I graduated from high school in 1956. He could name every person on my football team, what position they played, knew all the names. And I know he didn't have time to look it up and, and memorize. He just had, he was that kind of a person. But I told him, I said, let me tell you a story. I said, you remember the first day of football practice, what did we do? And he said, well, you, I'd put you one-on-one, -on -one, meaning that you would go against somebody as hard as you could go. And I was a sophomore, and he put me up against a senior, and you went at each other as hard as you could go. And I remember that when just about the point of impact that I turned my back because I didn't want to get hit. And I said, you chewed my ass and you got all over me and said, now do it again. I was so embarrassed that I said, never again. And I hit that senior, Mark Hartley, as hard as I could hit him. And I said, from that point on, I never did anything halfway in my life. I said, that's the impact that you had on me. That set the stage. Vern grew up in a lumber town. In a sawmill, a green chain moves wood through the mill from one end to the other. It's a hot, brutal kind of work. He grew up there. He didn't want to stay. I wasn't going to work on the green chain. I was going to go to college. When I went to college, if you went to a land-grant college, which Washington State was, Oregon State was, you had to go to two years of ROTC. You had no choice. Everybody, every male had to go to two years of ROTC. I started in the Army my first semester. I didn't really like it, so I said, I want to transfer to the Air Force, and they let me. Did my two years, and I said, I kind of like this, so I applied to go to advanced ROTC, and I was accepted and you take an aptitude test, and it's, I used to say it was eight hours, I don't know how long it took, but it was a long time. I passed everything, but I didn't pass the aptitude for pilot. I passed to be a navigator, but not a pilot. So I did my junior and senior year, and at the end of my senior year, I had enough hours, but not enough in any one subject, because I'd changed majors from pre-med to business, back to biology. So I had to go a fifth year and I did my student teaching and got my secondary degree in education. But I said, I want to take the test over at the end of my senior year. I said, I've got to go another year. So uh, I'd like to take the aptitude test for pilot. No, I said, oh, it doesn't do, nothing ever changes. I said, if I'm willing to sit through that test, you've got to give it to everybody who's coming in. So I'm not inconveniencing anybody. It's my time and I want to do that. They said, okay. Two things changed. 
My pilot aptitude went up high enough to be accepted into pilot school. My officership went down, but not low enough to be disqualified. <laughs> so after four years of ROTC, my officership went down, but my pilot aptitude, I, I passed. And I got to go through the flight indoctrination program my fifth year. But I was doing my student teaching in Ephrata. And then I was coming back to school. Now I'm married by this time in college, my fifth year, and have a young son. And at the end in the spring, after you get your training in the flight program, you go up with an FAA instructor uh, to see if whether to to see if you get a license or not. My instructor said, you're not going to pass. Because he said, you only get to fly on the weekend when you come back from Afreda. And so you don't get to fly as much as the other guys do. But he says, I'll still recommend you for flight school. So I went up with the inspector, came down. My instructor said, how'd you do? I said, I passed. And he says, the only reason you passed is that you make people think you know what you're doing even if you don't. I said, well, I passed, I got my license, and from there I went to flight school. And that's my friend, Vern Condra. Don't tell him what he can or cannot do. That dog won't hunt. And you've been listening to the story of Lieutenant General Vernon Condra, a three-star Air Force retired and my goodness, you get to think about logistics in an entirely different way and about mentorship and the real visceral impact one person can have. That story about that coach and how it changed his life. So many of you out there in the field who are teachers, mentors, the work you're doing is so much more important than you know. And more and more of you who've received this kind of mentorship need to go back and tell the people what it meant to you. Because my goodness, what a shock it must have been to that coach sitting in an assisted living facility saying, yeah, maybe I made a difference because he wasn't sure until General Condra told him. When we come back, more of the story of this three-star Air Force retired Lieutenant General Vernon Condra here on Our American Stories. Turn to our American stories and to the story of Lieutenant General Vern Condra. Let's pick up with Doug Ryder and the story of the general's early days in uniform. Vern was commissioned as an officer in the United States Air Force. At first, his only job was to fly planes. I was a, a lieutenant. My job was to fly airplanes. Doesn't take much to motivate an airplane. Spin it, spark it, spray it, fly it. As an aircraft commander or as a co-pilot, when you're first starting, leadership things are, are not readily apparent. You got things that you need to do and you do them and it's, you don't have time for the other stuff. As he ascended through the ranks, Vern had to learn to lead. Lucky for him, he ran into the great World War II ace pilot, Lieutenant General J. 
Robbins. I worked for him for two years, and he was like a father, uh, probably the greatest teacher I've ever had. He uh, was a Texas Aggie. In World War II, he flew P-38s in World War II in New Guinea, had 22 kills. His first three missions, he had seven kills of Japanese fighters. But he was a tall Texan who had more integrity than any officer I've ever met. He would penalize himself, even if it was legal to do something, he wouldn't do it if he thought it was gonna be misconstrued or it would be something that somebody could twist around. And his byword would be, if you can't read about it in Jack Anderson, you better not be doing it. But he was just an absolute epitome of what an officer, quiet, never yelled. Chief of Staff, named to be not mentioned, was a two-star general. Tall gentleman, 6'4". And I saw him one day running down the hall with paperwork in his hand. I mean, literally running. And I looked at General Robbins and I said, is that what general officers do? Run down the hall with paper? And he says, Vern, he says, you do things with dispatch, but always with dignity. And I've never forgotten that. The other thing that absolutely stood out about him was that he was always on time. I planned a trip to the Pacific, probably 10-day trip, where we went all the way through the Pacific, visiting units, the general was, all the way to Japan and back, and gave arrival time, departure times. In the message to the units, I put arrival time, is when he uh, pulls into the chocks. Departure time is when the gear comes up and we will be on time. I have seen him stateside when we went from Scott Air Force Base in Illinois to Altus, Oklahoma, by, and we were over Oklahoma City. If we were behind because of winds, we put the airplane at red line to try to catch up. If we were ahead, we did 360s so as to not arrive early. He said it's rude to arrive early and catch people unaware, and he said it's poor planning when you arrive late. And he absolutely, if you had an eight o'clock meeting, you started at eight o'clock, and he would shut the door. My favorite story about General Robbins, young fella came through the office and I was the gatekeeper and he wanted to see the general and I said uh, do you mind if I ask why and he said when I was a young airman I was loading bombs at Wethersfield in England and what I was doing I was doing it wrong and General Robbins was then a colonel and the wing commander and he saw me and uh, he demoted me on the spot he says, I'm on my way to Minnesota. I was in St. Louis. I saw in the paper that he was retiring. I drove over here 30 miles out of my way because I would like to tell him that he was the best commander I've ever had. I said, stand by. I went in, relayed the story to the boss. And he says, I remember the incident. He said, send him in. And he shut the door and he spent a half hour with him.
But I thought that was a great testimony to a leadership that a, that a gentleman would go 30 miles out of his way just to say hello and let him know that he thought he was the best commander he'd ever had. You do things with dispatch, but always with dignity. True leadership demands accountability. True leadership is proactive, not reactive. And Vern learned by watching the great World War II ace, Lieutenant General J.T. Robbins. And it wouldn't be long before he needed those skills himself. When I was a lieutenant colonel and I was an ops officer in a squadron, flying squadron, which is one of the best jobs in the Air Force. Because you're working with crews, you're working with pilots, with flight engineers, loadmasters, navs, co-pilots. You're where the rubber meets the ramp. And I get called into the wing commander's office on a Friday afternoon and asked, how would you like to be the chief of the command post? Well, command post, first of all, has, had always been a terrible job. And it shouldn't have been because everything goes through the command post, all the flying activities, all the coordination, the loading, the unloading, the putting of crews with airplanes, everything goes through the command post. But for some reason, the command post never got the top people to work. And I had worked in a command post as a captain, just part-time, temporary. And when the wing commander asked me how would I like to be the chief of the command post, because the current chief had gotten fired, I said, you want an honest answer or you want an answer you want to hear? He says, I want an honest answer. I said, I want no part of it. Not only no, but hell no. He says, good, Monday morning, it's yours. And so I spent the next 13 months in the command post. And, and we went from one of the worst to the top command post in the, in the command. But not because of me. I had a senior NCO, senior master sergeant, Ray Ionelli. And he knew more about command posts than anybody. I said, you're going to do the things that we need to do to become the best. And I went to the DO, a colonel. I'm a lieutenant colonel. I said, okay, I'm now in charge of the command post. From now on, any duty officer who comes assigned to the command post will be the number one guy in the flying squadron. No more sending me the, the guys that don't fly. No more sending me the dregs. No more sending people to the command post who can't do anything else that the squadrons want to get rid of. You're going to send only people who can get promoted, and we're going to promote them because they're going to do a good job. This is the most important function you've got on this airfield, so why aren't you manning it with the, with the best people that you got? And why don't they get rewarded? I wasn't afraid to speak my mind, put it that way. And my wife still says she always had a bag packed because she figured I was going to get fired at any minute. Vern doesn't take credit for making his command post number one. He deserved a lot of it. He told his CO the uncomfortable truth. They had been getting it wrong. This at great risk to his career, showing great moral courage. And when we come back, we'll continue with the last part of this remarkable story. And what a voice, just a straight shooter 
and some real honesty, bluntness, and a look into leadership that we don't ordinarily get to look into, and from a person who knows a whole lot about it. When we continue more of Lieutenant General Vernon Condra's story, his leadership story, and his life story here on Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and the story of General Vern Condra. Having learned a lot about leadership from great officers, he's now taking on more and more command responsibility himself. Here again is our own Doug Ryder. Vern Condra's success at the command post set the stage for future promotions. When I was ops officer, the commander, I was with him, and there was a young captain or a lieutenant, I don't remember, a young officer. The commander went up to him and said, oh, you must be new to the squadron. He said, no, sir, he says, I've been here three years. Now, I saw the look on that kid's face. Here he's been busting his butt, flying in the squadron for three years, and his commander didn't know who he was. I said, if I ever get to be a commander, that will never happen me. And when I got to be a commander, I had 260 people in my squadron. I could name every single one of them without looking at his name tag. I knew about them. I knew about their family. I knew what they did. How can you ask people to go out and die for you if you don't even know who the hell they are? I mean, you're asking them to be committed. How can they be committed if you don't even know who they are? called leadership. Now you don't do that by sitting in your office. You got to go out and fly. You got to be out on the line with them. You got to be out where they are. But when you're at home, I used to refer to it as management by running around. I didn't ask people to come to my office. I went to theirs. If I wanted something, I'd go to their workplace. Because on the way, I'm going to see a half a dozen others. And they're going to see me. It's not efficient, but it's damn effective. And the other thing is, the most important thing that a person has is his or her name. You need to know who they are. And you can spot phonies. They'll say, oh, hi, bub. How you doing, bub? They don't have a clue who the hell you are. But you look them in the eye and call them their name and know something about them. And it takes effort, but it really pays dividends. How can you ask someone to die for you when you don't even know their name? Vern was promoted to wing commander at McCord Air Force Base in Tacoma, Washington. He was the mayor. 
I had all responsibility for everything that happened at McCord Air Force Base. 5,000 people, flying mission, civil engineers, everything that happened on, on the base was my responsibility. Great job, great people, great unit. My favorite story, I'd only been here a month. The supply squadron had been selected as the best supply squadron in the United States Air Force. Big ceremony. After it was over with, this little lady in tennis shoes came up to me and she says, Colonel, we're the best supply squadron in the Air Force. I said, yes, ma'am. She says, I've been here 30 years in this supply squadron. She says, I'm gonna tell you one thing. If you're lucky, you'll be here two years. I've been here 30, we're the best there is, don't screw it up. Yes, ma'am, I'll do my very best. And I've never forgotten that. I thought that was one of the greatest comments I've ever heard. General Condra did not screw it up. He kept getting promoted. He ended up going to headquarters of Military Airlift Command as Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait in 1990. It was the largest airlift in military history. Verne ended up running the operations of the airlift as a result of the incumbent not being up to the task. He was a micromanager. Well, there were six colonels that ran the crisis action team. And all of this, this whole command post system that's, that's doing all this airlift, making all these coordinations with these units and doing stuff. He was a micromanager and he, had, and he got down into the weeds. And the guys, the colonels, were having to answer minutia instead of taking care of things. And there was a couple of things came up during that couple of weeks at the morning staff meeting that it was obvious that he didn't understand what was going on. It was obvious that the four star didn't like what was going on. And it finally came to a culmination on the 22nd of August when there was a blow up at the staff meeting uh, the four-star just had had enough, and he was usually pretty quiet. And uh, I got called into the office and said, what do I do? And I said, about what? About so-and-so. I said, well, even if he's right, after this morning, you're not going to listen because you don't have any faith in him. And he says, you're right. I said, if you're looking for somebody to do this, I know how to do this. I know how the system works. I've been everything from a second lieutenant co-pilot to a first lieutenant aircraft commander to a captain instructor to a flight examiner to a flight commander, an ops officer, a command post chief, squadron commander of an airlift squadron, a wing vice commander, a wing commander, an airlift division commander. So I said, I know how the system works. And I told him, I said, if you're looking for a volunteer, I'll take it. I can do this. He says, good, five o'clock tomorrow morning, it's yours. When I went in the next morning, first thing I did was get the colonels together and told them, you guys run this. You know how to do this. You've got more airlift experience than anybody alive. You're the senior colonels in this command. You've done all these things. You know how to do it. You do that, 
I'll take care of the four-star in the briefings. I'll keep him off your ass. You just go do your job. Don't worry about the old man. You just go do what you got to do. I had a deputy, one star, and I told him the rest of the command is still, they're still training and equipping and things that still have to go on. Take care of it. Don't come to me because I'm not going to have time. That's your bailiwick from now on. You take care of the regular day-to-day -day things that we would normally be doing. That's your job. If you can't do it, I'll get somebody who can. I asked my friend, General Vernon Condra, whether he really wanted that job. Here is his response. It wasn't a question of want. To truly understand General Condra, you need only look behind his desk. Behind my desk, on the wall, was a needlepoint in a frame that was, what, 14 by 18? And it said, most men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. Abraham Lincoln. And I thought that was just absolute great way to live. And I believed it so much, I had it on a little piece of paper. I don't know where I cut it out from, but I had it sitting on top of my nameplate holder, just a little tiny one inch by two inch. And my secretary saw that and she needle pointed it for me and hung it on the wall. In the late 1800s, an English baron named Lord Acton was quoted as saying, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. When I think of my friend, General Vernon J. Condra, United States Air Force retired, that is what comes to my mind. Incorruptible, morally courageous, and bound by duty. And a special thanks to Doug Ryder, our friend, and also board member of our nonprofit. And by the way, he spent a lifetime, Doug, placing people as CEOs of companies. And his only job in the end, as he has told me many times, figure out the character of your people, especially those in power. And will they empower people? And will they cheerlead people on and coach them and let them do their jobs or not? Because that's how leaders get in trouble always. That power corrupts them. It's so true what Lincoln said. Most men can handle adversity and stand it. But if you want to test his character, give him power. Smart words to live by. Again, Abraham Lincoln's words. No fool himself. And what a story this was. From the beginning, let's face it, he didn't want to do what his family did, what so many people in the neighborhood did, and that's work at the lumberyard. I wasn't going to work on the green chain. My goodness, so many people don't want to work on the family farm or wherever or whatever. They've got their own destiny, their own calling. And all the way through as he's growing up and going through the ranks, learning how to lead. I mean, when he started, he was just a pilot. And what did he say? I mean, I love the words, spin it, spark it, spray it, and fly it. And that was his total responsibility is just, well, piloting that piece of metal in the air. But as he grew older, he had to learn how to do more and shepherd more than himself and the machine he was handling. He had to learn how to lead and shepherd others. 
That's a whole different skill set, folks. How to respect them, how to listen to them. And in the end, him saying at the end, leading the biggest airlift in history to all those underneath him, you've done this, you know how to do it. I'll take care of the four stars and keep them off your you-know-whats. And that's all you want in a boss, folks. Lieutenant General Vernon Condra's story here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between. And we love to tell your stories, too. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. They are some of our favorites. And our next story, well, it's a whopper. On this day in history in 1863, Henry Ford was born. And all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that are beautiful in life all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. Over the next hour, we are going to tell you the story of one man whose vision and determination revolutionized the world. Henry Ford did not invent the automobile. He didn't even invent the assembly line. But more than any other single individual, he was responsible for transforming the automobile from an invention of unknown utility and expensive curiosity into an innovation that profoundly shaped the 20th century and continues to affect our lives today. You all know his name. You're about to know his story. Here's Greg Hengler. He is arguably the most influential man of the 20th century. He was praised by everyone from Presidents Woodrow Wilson and Herbert Hoover to the notorious gangsters Public Enemy No. 1, John Dillinger, and Bonnie and Clyde. He's a man who changed how we all live. He gave us the Model T, the V8, and the traffic jam. Here's historians David Kennedy, Nancy Cohen, and Douglas Brinkley. Well, Henry Ford, uh, I suppose, is a candidate for this elusive title of the most representative American ever because he did and symbolizes so many uh, things that I think are characteristic of this country's historical development. The Model T greatly expanded Americans' mobility, knitting America very close together at the same time that it opened American sense of what was possible. So he liberated at the individual level, the human spirit. Henry Ford was a revolutionary. He changed all of 20th century America. We're living in Henry Ford's world right now. Johnny O'Connor owned an automobile. He took his for a ride last Sunday. More books have been written about auto pioneer Henry Ford than any other person in the car business. Though he has critics, he put the world on wheels with his famous Model T. But less well-known is the fierce independent streak that led him to wage a lone and heroic battle for the right to run his own business. 
It was a struggle against the kind of people who think they should have the power to determine what is best for the rest of us. This is the story of Henry Ford. The year is 1903. America is becoming the most powerful nation on Earth. Transformed by a post-Civil War wasteland into a budding superpower by a group of visionaries that have brought the country into the 20th century. Henry Ford is among this new generation of businessmen, and he is facing a new set of challenges as he struggles to get his company off the ground. Young entrepreneur Henry Ford has created a new kind of car, one specifically built for popular use. It weighs a thousand pounds, has a four-cylinder engine, and is capable of speeds up to 45 miles an hour. It is priced at $825, compared to $1,500 for the average licensed car, which makes it the first car affordable to the common man. But in order to sell it, he needs to get permission from the Association of Licensed Automobile Manufacturers, also known as Alum. In the guise of protecting the public from unreliable upstarts, 11 car manufacturers form Alum in 1903. Alum owns the patent on the automobile, giving them complete control over who can manufacture and sell cars. Alum chooses the winners and the losers for the future auto industry. These social planners are, in a sense, a giant car monopoly who partner with the government, all in the name of doing what is best for us. Ford is hopeful he'll be approved by Alum, allowing him to start his own business and to pursue his dream for the future of the car industry. Here's historian H.W. Brands. When Ford entered the automobile business, people didn't drive their own cars. They had drivers. And so cars were seen as this luxury item. Ford's insight was that cars could be an everyday item. They could be very utilitarian. So that it was within the reach of ordinary people. Ford spends years developing his car for the common man. He builds his first gasoline-powered horseless carriage at the age of 33 and calls it the quadricycle. But the vehicle is expensive to produce and prone to breaking down. Ford's second attempt, the Model A, is much more suited to the needs of modern America, but he can't begin selling it without permission from Alum. Here's Henry Ford biographer, Stephen Watts. Alum was successful in blackmailing other automobile companies, saying, you have to be licensed by us or we will sue you and we own this patent. After months of deliberation, the Alum board reaches its decision. Henry Ford's application is rejected. He is one of the first applicants to be refused a license. At 40, he's broke and appears to be all washed up. Ford needs to find a way around what appears to be an impassable fortification. It's a daunting task, but Henry Ford has been preparing for this moment his entire life. And when we come back, we continue with this remarkable story, Henry Ford's story, and it's true, he changed how we all lived. And it's remarkable to note 
that up until Ford was doing what he was doing and thinking like he was thinking, people who owned cars didn't drive them. So clearly it was for the rich who had butlers, help, valets, whatever. And what Ford was trying to do was to, well, bring it to the ordinary person by bringing the price down and also by letting that person, well, drive the cars themselves. And on this day in history in 1863, Henry Ford was born. When we return, we continue with the life of Henry Ford. And we continue with our American stories. And on this day in history in 1863, Henry Ford was born. And when we last left off, Ford was facing seemingly insurmountable obstacles. In his early 40s, broke, beaten down by a cartel. What could possibly be next? Let's take a listen. It's July 30th, 1863. The Civil War is still raging, and it's 30 years before the first automobile appears in the U.S. Farmers William and Mary Ford have their first surviving child in Dearborn, Michigan. They name him Henry. His childhood is spent on a farm among prairies, deep blue lakes, and tall green trees. Horses and horse-drawn carriages are the main form of transportation, and hard work is the only way to get things done. Henry's parents expect all their six children to work alongside them on the land. But Henry finds the work tedious, and when he begins obsessing over machines that might make farm life easier, his parents indulge their naturally curious child. They allow him to neglect his chores and set up a workbench for him in the kitchen. Henry's father once said, he's not much of a farmer, he's a tinkerer. Here's automotive historian Robert Casey. Henry Ford was a natural-born mechanic. He had innate ability. One of the first places that he was able to begin to hone that ability was when he received a watch for his 13th birthday. Like a lot of little boys who wanted to know about machines, he took that watch apart. Unlike most little boys, he was able to put the watch back together again. Phil Anschutz writes in Out Where the West Begins, when his siblings received wind-up toys for Christmas, they had to hide them from Henry or he would take them apart to see their inner workings. In 1876, Henry's 12-year-old world falls apart. His beloved mother, Mary, dies during childbirth along with the newborn baby. But that very month, young Henry sees something that will change his life forever. While traveling down the road with his father in their horse-drawn wagon, Henry gets his first close-up view of a billowing steam-powered road roller, also known as a steamroller, a bulky vehicle that chugged along country roads and performed farm chores for hire. Henry scrambles off the wagon and chases down the owner of this machine. Here's that moment portrayed in the 1987 film Ford. The man and the machine. Oh, what's that? Looks like a stove on wheels. He ain't got no horses. It's that engine making the wagon go. Hey, Ray, you come back here. Listen to your father. 
For Henry Ford, this encounter was his road to Damascus, a glimpse of the full potential of the industrial revolution and free market capitalism. Not merely brute factory power, but mobility, the capacity of a machine to venture deep into the countryside off the beaten track, far from the railroad, and enhance the lives of farmers who had previously felt cut off from the outside world. Formal education didn't much interest Henry. He quit school after the fifth grade. And like his future friend Thomas Edison and countless other youngsters across the nation, he finds satisfaction by working with his hands on a complicated task. At some point after seeing the road roller, Ford begins dreaming of building his own mobile contraption. On a cold day in December 1879, Henry walks the nine miles from his family farm to the city of Detroit to become a machine shop apprentice. It is here where he will reinvent himself. In 1885, while attending a dance, Henry Ford meets Clara Bryant. Henry impresses Clara with a watch he made. She likes that he is a serious person and willing to work hard. Then, on a spring day in 1888, wearing a wedding dress that she's made herself, Clara marries Henry Ford. Ford nicknames his wife the Believer because she never doubts his skill as an inventor. He says, It was a very great thing to have my wife even more confident than I was. Three years later, Henry Ford takes a job at the Edison Illuminating Company, working his way up to chief engineer by the age of 31. It's here where Henry Ford and the owner of the company, the man who invents the light bulb, Thomas Edison, become good friends. During his free time, with his canny source of rugged engineering, Ford will stay in his dimly lit shed behind the house, long into the night and often through the morning, secretly tinkering with machinery and doing experiments on his gasoline-powered engine. His curious neighbors ask his wife what he's doing all night long. Her response is simple. Henry is making something. Maybe someday I'll tell you about it. As the years pass, however, he begins to spend less time worrying about providing electricity to the citizens of Detroit and more on what has become his after-hours obsession. Here's technology historian John Staudenmeyer. Transportation in America was terrible once you got away from the railroads. Terrible. It was an enormous burden. I mean, if you're living on the farm, getting around on land is one of the biggest problems people have. Meanwhile, in other parts of the world, German engineers Nicholas Otto and Eugene Langen have already invented the internal combustion engine that runs on gasoline. In 1886, their countrymen Gottlieb Daimler and Carl Benz are crossing European roads in their first automobile. But Ford is undisturbed by all this. He wants to build an automobile that is superior to all of theirs. In 1893, Ford sets out to build the gasoline-powered vehicle that has been taking shape in his mind. Here's Ford biographer Robert Lacey. Henry Ford had an enormous capacity for concentration. He became something of a mad professor when he was actually working on a project. And so when he was building his first internal combustion engine, his own version of it, 
He got so wrapped up that he brought it home on Christmas Eve when his poor wife was cooking the turkey and getting the meal ready and everything. And right in the middle of all this, he stuck the machine on the kitchen sink, uh, screwed it to the sink, got his wife, whose, whose hands were all covered with gravy and stuff, to actually drip gasoline into the top of it. He connected the wires and started the machine and was quite oblivious to the fact that he was filling the kitchen with clouds of exhausted smoke. Henry Ford is determined to show the world that to succeed in America, all you need is integrity and ingenuity. Ford knows that he cannot be free to succeed as long as alum clouds the destiny as marked out for himself. Ford is left with few options, but he isn't about to give up on his dreams. Here again is Ford biographer Stephen Watts. Ford thought that uh, the whole thing was ridiculous, uh, that there could not be a patent on the idea of the automobile, that the automobile was not the property of one single individual. Ford is determined to get around Allen's stranglehold on the auto industry, but he's just one man going up against a virtual monopoly. If he's going to be a success without Allen, he's going to need to make a name for himself. Ford writes, the public thinks nothing of a car unless it makes speed, unless it beats other racing cars. Henry Ford challenges the owner of the biggest car company in the country to a race. And talk about audacity, and what a story, folks. A childhood on the farm, all he saw was horses and horse-drawn carriages, works with his hands, he's a tinkerer, totally self-taught, and right around the same time that he loses his mom, well, he also gets his first look at that old steamroller. And, well, that was his road to Damascus. And when we come back, we're going to hear about how Henry Ford, well, how he changed the world, challenged the monopoly power of a group that was essentially trying to block competition and protect their own way of doing business under the pretext of a patent that even Henry Ford thought was just absurd, how to keep a patent on something as broad as an automobile. By the way, there have been stories right up to the present day of the abuse of patents, and we've covered a few of them here. And when we come back, more on the life of Henry Ford. Again, quit school after the fifth grade, and my goodness, working for Thomas Edison at the Edison Illuminating Company in Detroit. More on the life of Henry Ford when we continue here on Our American Stories. For more, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. And we continue with our American stories. We're telling the story of Henry Ford because on this day in history in 1863, he was born. And again, all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that matter and that are beautiful in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, 
Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. I would heartily recommend their Constitution 101 course. I learned more from it than I did in three years at the University of Virginia School of Law. It's that good. We now pick up with the story of Henry Ford and his ongoing battle with the Association of Licensed Automobile Manufacturers, also known as Alum. Alexander Winton is known as the fastest driver in America and is also a prominent member of Alum. Beating Winton with a car of his own design has the potential to give Ford the boost he needs to start his own company. There's just one problem. Henry Ford has never raced a car before. Here again is Stephen Watts. It's a David and Goliath scene. Winton's famous world record holder has this fancy race car. Ford, the local boy, made good. For the first third of the 10-mile race, Ford legs behind Winton, struggling to control his car on the curves because he doesn't have any brakes. Then on the sixth lap, he starts to close the gap. As Winton's engine begins to overheat and smoke, the crowd erupts as Ford zooms past his rival, winning the race by nearly a mile. Henry Ford's upset win over the fastest man in America makes him instantly famous. Ford's a hero, and this is really the first big time, I think, that he becomes a celebrity. Uh, the Ford name gets out there, and he milks it for everything that it's worth. And it was a very crucial part of Ford getting investors for the Ford Motor Company. But Ford's success is met with almost instant defeat. William Murphy, his key financial backer, fires Ford and starts another car company named after the founder of Fort Detroit, the French explorer Antoine de Cadillac. Ford leaves with his name, $900, and a dream. Henry Ford raises $28,000, or $700,000 today. On June 16, 1903, Ford has enough money to incorporate the Ford Motor Company and before long, he's producing 15 cars a day, priced low enough for almost any American. But Ford's investors propose an alternative way to increase profits, by increasing the price tag of his automobile. Here again is Ford biographer Robert Lacey. From the beginning, there seemed to have been two strands in American car making. There were the people who were making horseless carriages for the rich, loading them down, making them heavy and luxurious. And then there was Henry Ford, who had this idea that a car should be able to go along the rutted tracks. It should be able to drive across a plowed field. A farmer should be able to use it and take a wheel off it and fix a chain to it and, and cut some trees down or husk some corn. That was all he was interested in from the start. Henry Ford's early success puts him on the map. Alum takes notice and hits him with a lawsuit claiming he's breaching their patent on the automobile. It's a blatant attempt to police him out of the business, but Ford's dream to make the car a necessity rather than a luxury will not be crushed. Here's Shark Tank's Mark Cuban. You see all these huge conglomerations suing people over patents. The big guys are taking advantage of the little guys, trying to find whatever angle they could and using their might, and those with the best tricksters win. Ford is convinced the era of unchecked monopolies is over. So, as his lawsuit winds its way through the court, 
He openly defies the order from Alum and continues building and selling his cars. Henry Ford believes there's a better way to conduct business in America, and he's determined to make it a reality. Ford's unprecedented and groundbreaking $5 a day raise is more than double the rate of most U.S. factories. He also cuts hours from 10 per day to 8. But Ford isn't just paying his workers better, he's also getting more out of them. He innovates a new system for producing cars. Rather than handcrafting each car one at a time at stationary workbenches, his are assembled by a line of workers, piece by piece. It's called the moving assembly line, and it completely changes manufacturing forever. Here again is historian H.W. Brands. Ford didn't invent mass production, but he perfected mass production. He understood that a complicated product like an automobile could be simplified and could be made less expensive if the same thing was produced again and again and again. Using the assembly line, Ford's workers can build cars up to eight times faster than any other automobile factory in the world. What once took 12 and a half man hours to assemble now takes 93 minutes. The innovation allows Ford to standardize the eight hour workday, five days a week. Meanwhile, Ford awaits the future of his company. It's potentially a life-changing moment, not just for Ford, but for the future of every industry in America. In a surprise decision, the court rules in favor of Henry Ford. Alum has no legal claim to the design of the car. Ford's battle against Alum and the state lasted from 1903 until 1911, at some point early in the fight, Ford could have negotiated a peace treaty with Alum, but that would have violated his principles. Ford was once asked, what's your greatest ambition? To be free, a free man, he shot back. Ford knew that he could not be free so long as the Alum patent clouded the destiny he had marked out for himself. Ford's destiny is made a reality and the car belongs to everyone. Ford's success put him forward in American life as a new kind of businessman. But in crucial ways, unlike Rockefeller or Carnegie, he wasn't trying to gain a monopoly. He was trying to bring a product to the people. The American population ate this up, and they made Henry Ford a kind of folk hero. Ford seizes the momentum and his factories go into overdrive. Every few months, Ford introduces a new model, making his way through the alphabet. But the Model K is too heavy and expensive. The Model N, though lighter and cheaper, has an engine cast in four pieces rather than one block. Ford keeps at it and hits the jackpot with the Model T. Here again is John Stoudemire. I think it was the same kind of excitement that the Man on the Moon mission people had. There are a handful of those kinds of moments in American history where there's a dream that is so big in its potential and you think you got it, and then you get it. Ford's assembly line starts producing this revolutionary new car at a record rate. 
the Model T costs only $825. It's a four-cylinder, 20-horsepower, five-passenger family car. Powerful, speedy, and enduring. A car that looks good and is as good as it looks. Mr. Hurt, Model T! The response is immediate and overwhelming. Orders pour in from doctors and farmers. Americans who have never dreamed of becoming motorists can now afford Henry Ford's Model T. And what a story, and my goodness, some breaking points, some turning points in his life. Winning that race, and of course starting the company that had one, well, failed launch. And Mark Cuban, well, he put it right. Those big guys at Allen were trying to take advantage of this little guy and using law, patent law, and every other legal trick. And luckily for Ford, after an eight-year struggle in the courts, the courts, well, they let Ford be a free man, and he was free to compete. And this ushered in the Model T and modern transportation as we know it and the automobile. When we come back, this remarkable life story, Henry Ford's story, continues here on Our American Story. Get more at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. And we continue with the life of Henry Ford. And my goodness, storytelling doesn't get better than this, folks, about an American icon. So much of this I didn't know myself. On this day in history in 1863, Henry Ford was born. And all of our This Day in Histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College, where you can go to learn all the things that are beautiful in life, all the things that matter in life. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to Hillsdale. Let's pick up where we last left off. Here's historians Greg Grandin and Hasia Diner. The Model T changed everything. It gave people a new sense of power and authority and control over their lives. You can go wherever you want it and you can go by yourself. You can get in your car and you have access now to towns to cities, to places that were beyond your reach just a few years earlier. They are also remarkably durable. Here's historian Douglas Brinkley. They didn't break down a lot compared to other vehicles, and when they did, they were very simple to repair. This wasn't somebody just genie out a product. This was a quality to the economical car that the world had never even imagined could be possible. Part of the enduring myth of the Model T is that all of them were black. But when the Model T first came on the market, customers could get almost any color except black. Blue, gray, green, and red were all available. It was not until five years later that the any color so long as it's black policy was finally implemented. Then in 1913, Ford enacted another amazing advancement with the implementation of standardized interchangeable parts. 
Unlike other cars at the time, every Model T produced on the line used the exact same valves, gas tanks, tires, etc., so that they could be assembled in a speedy and organized fashion. 1,000 cars a day roll out of the factory in 1914, 2,000 in 1916, and as productivity goes up, the price goes down. Soon, 60% of all cars made in the U.S. are Model Ts. And by 1927, Ford has rolled 15 million through his assembly lines. All the success didn't concern Ford much. Workers report seeing him take a crumpled up piece of paper out of his pocket, only to discover that it is a check for $68,000. Henry stuffed it in there and then forgot all about it. To Ford, making money didn't make a person successful. As he later wrote, to do for the world more than the world does for you, that is success. One small yet very significant and relatively unknown success for Ford was his popularization of an incendiary little brick that helps fire up our grills. One of the primary raw materials Ford used to build his Model Ts was wood. So he sent a friend to look for forest land to purchase in Michigan's Upper Peninsula. To find out how using wood to build Model Ts led to a building block of the backyard barbecue, let's hear from Matt Anderson, the curator of transportation of the Henry Ford. Ford was building Model Ts by the hundreds of thousands every year, and he was starting to think about vertical integration, not just owning the factories that built the cars, but all of the raw materials that went into them. Looking for forest land up there, he hired a fellow by the name of Edward Kingsford. He was a Ford dealer, he had some experience with real estate, and not incidentally, he was married to Henry Ford's first cousin. So he goes around and finds over 300,000 acres that Henry Ford purchases, and then Ford builds a sawmill right there on the site to build the bodies and then send them down to the plant in Dearborn. Henry Ford's lumber mill was producing hundreds of thousands of board feet of lumber each day, so there was a lot of wood waste coming out of that. And Ford thought, rather than throw away all this waste, what if we could turn it into a commercial product? And that's where the charcoal briquette idea came from. It's been said that Ford had some outside help in developing the exact chemistry behind his charcoal briquettes and the makeup of the plant. In fact, it's been said that Thomas Edison assisted to some extent in that. And whether it's true or not, it is for sure that Edison came up and visited Ford's Upper Peninsula land holdings in 1923. As long as Henry was alive and Ford Motor Company was producing it, it was sold under the Ford brand name, just like the cars. After Henry Ford dies in 1947, the company slowly begins to move away from this vertical integration idea. They sell off their businesses in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, including the charcoal business, which then another company buys, and they rename the product Kingsford after the town where Ford had founded up there, which was named for Edward Kingsford. By 1963, Barbecues, like cars, were icons of American leisure. As an article in Reader's Digest observed, cooking with charcoal is now as deeply ingrained in American life as the long weekend in the servantless kitchen. At the end of 1927, Ford introduces the newly improved Model A. This new design is revolutionary. It's a 65 mile per hour beauty it incorporates things like headlights, a windshield, and even a turnkey ignition. He also introduces a new way of buying a car, financing, a method that is still the most common way of buying a car to this very day. 
Cutting prices enable Ford to achieve what are his two aims in life. To bring the pleasures of the automobile to as many people as possible and to provide a large number of high-paying jobs for his workers. Here's business historian Murray Klein. Henry Ford created what became the most important industry in the American economy. He had no idea of the enormous impact it would have on almost every sector of American life. He literally changed America, the way we live, the way we do things, and the way we go about our business. Ford's reputation won't always be so positive, but his revolution inspires an entire generation of visionaries who will transform the fabric of American life. Childhood friends William Harley and Arthur Davidson attach an engine to a bicycle and begin selling motorcycles to the masses. Milton Hershey applies Henry Ford's assembly line model to the mass production of chocolate. Chicago merchant William Wrigley takes his chewing gum national, and in Hollywood, Polish immigrant Max Factor begins distributing cosmetics for movie stars to drugstores across the country, inventing a completely new consumer product, makeup. In the spring of 1947, Henry Ford returns home from vacation. On his second day back, heavy rain causes the Rouge River to overflow, knocking out power to the Fairlane power plant and to Henry Ford's estate. That evening, Henry and his wife turn in early, power still out in their room lit only by an oil lamp and a few candles. Before the night is out, Henry Ford, the father of mass production, the inventor of the modern age, the man who embodied the American dream, lays his head on his wife's shoulder and leaves the world just as he came into it 84 years earlier, by candlelight. In Detroit, Motorists are asked to come to a complete stop at the time the automaker's body is being lowered into the ground. At the second, when the automobiles come to a stop, Detroit returns to the way Henry Ford had found it. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great work, as always, by Greg Hengler, and thanks to all who contributed to this piece, all the historians, the Ford Museum, and what a life story, folks. And it doesn't get more quintessentially American than Henry Ford's story. Starts out at the family farm, not really interested in school, starts to tinker, challenges the world's greatest auto racer to a race, and he's never raced a car before, and he wins. Starts a company, it gets stolen from him, he starts it again, and he challenges a cartel and wins in court. And by the way, he does some remarkable things as a businessman. He raises wages, he cuts hours, and he brings down the cost of a car and creates a car that everyone in America can use, taking it from the purview of the rich to the ordinary and the day-to-day -day and giving people tremendous freedom 
to roam, to visit, to travel, and to live as they please. And by the way, on a secondary note, it's well chronicled that Ford had some anti-Semitic problems and problems with anti-Semitism, as did much of America. But in the end, Ford's great work on perfecting production and the means of production helped power the arsenal of democracy, which allowed America to defeat the Nazi war machine. Henry Ford's story, a terrific Michigan story, a great American story, here on Our American Story. For more, go to ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter. at ouramericannetwork.org and sign up for our weekly newsletter.